Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Alfred Molina started his acting career almost 40 years ago, first on British television, then he did a few movies. His first big part came in 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's right at the very beginning. He's the guy who steals the idol from Indiana, then abandons him. Not a bad first gig. Since then, he's played over 150 roles on screen. He's responsible for a bunch of other unforgettable scenes in movies like Boogie Nights, Chocolat, Magnolia. He played Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2. And guess what? Doc Ock's back, baby! Alfred reprised his role for Spider-Man No Way Home, which is out now. When I talked with Alfred Molina in 2017, he just starred in the first season of the FX series Feud. It's set in 1962, and it tells the story of the rivalry between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford that took place when they filmed the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Molina plays Robert Aldrich, the movie's director. He is, as always, great. And in this clip from the pilot episode, Molina's character is on the phone trying to convince a reluctant Betty Davis, played by Susan Sarandon, to team up with Joan Crawford and take the part. Betty, listen, here's the deal. Crawford's name on the marquee gets us distribution. I need her to get the picture made, but I need you to make the picture great. Keep talking. Betty, listen, I've made my share of steaming piles of but every now and again I get a chance to work with an artist like you, someone who isn't afraid to leap off a cliff. Most people are terrified to go anywhere near the edge. Now that gets me excited. I'm a kid again. Everything's possible. Betty, I promise you this is going to be the greatest horror movie ever made. And Baby Jane's the greatest part you'll play since Margot Channing. All right, answer this question, and don't lie. Why this picture? Honestly, I'm not being offered anything else. <laughs> Alfred Molina, welcome to Bullseye. It's great thank to have you, you on the show. Thank you, thank you. Nice to be here. The, your character on Feud's entire story is suffused with this combination of bravado and entitlement and terror. Like, there is not a moment when you are not staring down the end of your career (laughs) at the same time as there is not a moment that you are presuming that everyone on earth should just do what you say. (laughs) I think that's true. That's a it, it, and it's very true, I think, of a lot of people, uh, particularly white males in the industry at that time. I mean, there was, uh, you know, I and I don't think Robert Aldridge's generation even spoke in terms of entitlement and privilege. I don't think those words would even have occurred to them, um, that it was an issue, to, you know, that it was just the way things were. I mean, there's a, a wonderful moment in the series when Alison Wright's character, Pauline, confides in Robert and says that, you know, she's written this script and she really feels like she wants to, to, to direct it. And he basically says to her, no, that does. That's not going to happen because you know women don't direct movies, and he doesn't say it with any sort of meanness. It's it's just the way it is. It's just a fact, and and I think that that sort of true is that 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 the fact that that existed, that situation existed, allowed men like Robert to to both sort of be very conscious of of how their careers were oscillating, and at the same time assuming that you know what they said went, you know, and, and it's. Uh, it must. I, I. I imagine 
someone like Robert couldn't exist today, maybe in the movies, uh, only uh, unless they were literally rhino skinned. <laughs> you play a lot of bad guys. Um, do you find yourself liking them when you play them? I suppose on some level you do. One does. I think, yeah, I think on some level you kind of have to embrace them. Not that you sort of endorse anything, but you, yeah, you, you have to, maybe liking isn't quite, I, I can only speak for myself. I, I become, I accept them. I think, you know, uh, but there again, the villains I've played have very often been sort of villains in a kind of rather sort of extreme heightened way. They haven't always been comic book villains, but they, they've they've often been men who have done bad things for a, you know for a good reason, or have done bad things, you know, has been a motivation for something else, you know. So there's always a there's always a reason for it, you know. But I think yeah, you I think you have to embrace your characters if if only so as not to misrepresent them, if anything. You did play a literal comic book villain i did yes you, and you uh, played uh you played uh, dr octopus in spider-man 2 yeah which i have to say i think is probably the best is probably my favorite comic book movie and you're wonderful in it well thank you um that movie is a blast it's a really i mean i think you know it's 15 years later and you, you know, you can you can see a little bit of age on it these days. Oh yeah, but that movie is nothing ages. Nothing ages quicker <laughs> than acting styles and, uh, and 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 kind of movie styles. Nothing yeah. ages quicker. It's amazing. <laughs> well, certainly, computer graphics are one of the things yeah, yeah. that ages the most poorly. But that movie is a really fun movie. And I wonder if you're playing a character that is like literally an evil genius, <laughs> like an actual literal semi-robotic evil genius. How much of that is you seeking grounded humanity and how much of it is you letting on that you're enjoying being a robot man? Well, I think it's, I think it's 50-50. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's – you have to – Again, this goes back to the whole idea about you don't just embrace the character, but you embrace the world that the characters you know operating in. And I think there's there's nothing worse than um, than getting into one of those movies, particularly those kind of you know the, the whole comic book world of villains and superheroes. You can't go in there with a sort of attitude like you're going to be ironic about it because that just doesn't work. It, 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 you're on a hiding to nothing. You have to literally you have to embrace it and it has to be in some way as authentic as you can make it but that doesn't mean that you can't have fun along the way yeah. i mean the the uh um the late bob hoskins once said beautifully that he loved playing villains and these these are the three reasons he gave you you work for about half the time as the leading man they treat you like the crown jewels and if the movie sucks nobody blames the bad guy <laughs> And the thing is, it's absolutely true. You know, you can hate a movie. You, no one ever comes out kind of going, oh, the villain really, oh, the villain was terrible. You know, no, because the villain, the actor or actress who gets to play the villain has such wonderful license to have fun, to kind of, you know, you can legitimately chew the scenery when you're playing the bad guy. So there's a there's that element which makes it a lot of fun to play. But then there's that whole other side, which is you want to make a villain at least – 
give him some depth, give him some dimension, give him somewhere to go. So if you have a moment, the moment of, of regret, the moment of redemption, the moment when the villain suddenly does the right thing or you know, sacrifices him or herself to do the good thing, that moment can mean something. It can have some value, not just uh, for the story, but also for the audience. Um, so there's a, it, it's, it's a great gig to play the bad guy. It's a great gig. It really is. One of the things that I really like about those first two Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, and especially Spider-Man 2, which, as I mentioned, is my fave, is you know a lot of those comic books, especially those Marvel comic books, are about the kind of wounds of adolescence. You know, They're about, and Spider-Man especially, who is adolescent, mm-hmm. or at least like just post-adolescent, they're about those kind of hurts. And your character in that movie is allowed to be hurt and vulnerable, both literally, physically. I mean, that's why he has robot arms. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> by the way, this is going to be the most extensive discussion of robot arms in NPR history. <laughs> but like, that's both why he has robot arms and the kind of what's going on for his character is that he has this hurt. And, you know, it's not just a let's destroy the world hurt it's also kind of a scared hurt i I would add to that that what makes the marvel comic universe so interesting is that so many of the villains and the heroes in that world become so reluctantly they something something that they don't choose to be a superhero or a supervillain they something happens to them and i think that is a really crucial part of you know of why they're so appealing um and uh, you know as you say it's 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 that to do with that hurt that life experience somehow and that in itself just gives them a kind of a humanity and a depth that is uh, for an act from, from an actor's point of view that's really playable that's wonderful material to to to, to play with you know because it's it's something very very real it's it, it's it's not a concept or an idea it's actually something that's actable that's that's doable We have so much more to get into. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Alfred Molina, has starred in movies like Boogie Nights, Frida, and the brand new Spider-Man No Way Home. Let's get back into our conversation. I want to talk to you a little bit about your life. (laughs) I I can hear the listeners turning off. You grew up in London, uh, the child of two immigrants, Mm -hmm. your father from Spain and your mother from Italy. And I wonder how you thought of yourself as a kid. Did you feel English? Uh, I I remember feeling English at times. I remember desperately wanting to feel English, but somehow England always somehow reminding me and my family that we weren't it it was you know i was born in 53 1953 so i was growing up in the late 50s and 60s early 60s and the war uh world war ii was still very much alive in people's memories you know it was only 20 something years before there wasn't people there were still people who were active in politics, in the culture, in everyday life, who had direct experiences of the war and so on. So it was a huge, it was a huge event and something which completely colored and influenced everything about 
you know, life in Britain. Including in, people's opinions of inclu- Spaniards and inc- Italians? Yeah, because uh, the Italians were, had, had been uh, for a while, you know, sort of allied with uh, Nazi Germany. Um, uh, Spain had a, had a, had a, a f- fascist dictator who had remained neutral. But there was always the Brits, the British have always had a very good talent at reminding you, making you feel very welcome, but at the same time reminding you that you're not quite British. You're not, you know, and and, and so I, I kind of was aware, I was conscious of that a lot. But on a day-to-day basis, I, 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 I was the recipient of lots of different influences you know my my parents worked in the catering business my my father was a waiter my mother cleaned rooms in hotels you know we watched british tv even though most of it was american <laughs> you know we ate spanish food and italian food and and i sometimes longed for english food which i oddly enough my parents didn't cook very well um i i think i was maybe the only kid in my class that actually enjoyed school dinners <laughs> So it was, it was a, there was a lot of confusion, uh, but the one thing that was constant was my parents' attempts to be, to kind of to assimilate. You know, they worked very hard at learning English and they learned English very well. They could, uh, they both had a real skill for languages. They both learned each other's language and, and English, obviously. They had French in common. Uh, they could read, write, and speak fluently. So there was, uh, they were very proud to be there and very happy to be there and, and they worked very hard but there was always there was always you know I, I can remember being told by by my very first agent because i went through drama school my full name is alfredo and i went through drama school as alfredo and then my first agent said oh you'll have to drop the o darling you'll be uh, otherwise you'll be playing spanish waiters your whole life you know, and that, and and amazed, and I was thinking about that recently, and I suddenly thought, can you imagine? Can you imagine someone saying that nowadays to I don't know, Benicio del Toro? You know, can you imagine someone saying Benny? You know, let's, <laughs> you know, it's too 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 ethnic. You know, and and I, I sort of, uh, I'm sorry that I did. I'm sorry that I acquiesced. Now, I'm sorry that I took his advice. I, I want to play. Maybe the most famous scene that you have ever been in. It Ooh. was your first film, a movie called Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe some of our audience have heard of it. <laughs> um, uh, they may, if they don't remember it from the film, they probably remember this scene uh, from the ride at Disneyland. <laughs> so you played the the Peruvian guide of Indiana Jones. You betray him after stealing a golden idol, which leads to a boulder that both of you have to outrun. Maybe the boulder comes immediately after you no longer can do any running. Let's take a listen as as your character is on the other side of a crevasse from Indiana Jones. Give him the whip. Throw me the idol. No time to argue. Throw me the idol. I throw you the whip. Give me the whip. Adios, senor. (laughs) You've now spent, uh, I guess, like 35 years or something like that as the throw me the whip, throw me the idol guy. Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) 
Like you would think that being Dr. Octopus would uh, perhaps outclass being the throw me the whip, throw me the idle guy. But I imagine that uh, those are, I was going to say a burden that you that you carry, but I the the wings on your back will yeah. always be. There is no throw me the whip, yeah. throw me the idle. I, 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 this is, there is no burden. No, there is no, there, there, there is no burden involved whatsoever. I, this is the one thing when, when actors complain about, you know, getting stuck in, oh God, everyone keeps mentioning that line or that line. I, I start to lose my patience because it, it, this is, you know, I'm very flattered. I'm very flattered that, that I'm, you know, I'm part of, a, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a tiny little part. I, I'm a tiny little footnote in the history of, of movies. And that's delightful to me. Indiana Jones in and of itself is essentially an extended allusion to a kind of collective memory of cinema, that it is the whole operation is basically a tribute act. I mean, it's like the greatest tribute act ever. And that gives you permission as an actor to perform in a way that you can't in an education. Yep. Or <laughs> one of the other many sincere and deeply grounded films in which you've performed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's it's a it, it, it's a it's a, it's an iconic piece of film. It's it's a huge landmark in in the history of movies, and the fact that it's the fact that it is a kind of as you say it is a sort of throwback to a, a style of film that clearly uh, you know Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were were, were, were sort of great fans of. Um, cr that is a conti so I'm I'm I see myself as part of this continuum, and so I'm very I'm very proud and privileged about that you know I, I feel i feel privileged to be a part of it but it's it was the first time i realized that playing villains is going to be a lot of fun i read somewhere that sometimes on set you will play the game either with yourself or with other people who would have played this part oh <laughs> 10 or 20 or 30 years ago yeah yeah and in some way that is you Placing yourself in your performance in this in this context of the motion of time and history. Yeah, well, it started it started off when we were on the set of um, I did a movie called uh, uh, Prince of Persia with Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Mike Newell directed, and we were sitting around. We were in we were we were in North Africa. We were just filming. We were sitting around the set waiting to get a shot done, and we were talking about how. You know, uh, Mike Newell, our director, was actually talking about films that had influenced him in terms of how he wanted this to look, and he was, you know, he'd mentioned a few titles. And I then said, "Well, if we were making this movie thirty years ago, who who would be playing our parts?" And uh, the, what occurred to me was that the, the actor most likely. 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, to play my part would have been Peter Ustinov because he also had this, did a, played a lot of bad guys, different ethnic types, um, you know, different accents, you know, different, he, he, you know, he'd shave his head or he'd grow it long, he'd wear a long wig or false ears or something. You know, he, he was constantly changing uh, his look and everything. And I suddenly thought, yeah, he'd be playing this part. This would be his part. And then we just, and then it just got extended into other actors were talking about who would play them, you know. And, and it was, and it was an, it was a fun game because you suddenly, you do see this sort of, uh, you see this kind of arc of 
why certain actors get picked for certain roles you know what it is about them that kind of brings those characters to life you know is it is it just the character is it what the actor does with it you know and it's this sort of uh never i mean to me anyway endlessly fascinating balance of of how much of it is the character and how much of it is the uh the actor sort of you know bringing it to life does it make you self-conscious when you think about those things because it makes you realize how much of your own career is not necessarily your um acting choices but some quality that you have i i, I think it, it it makes me uh it does two things actually it may it makes me very grateful that i've had the chance to do these this kind of range of stuff but it also makes me aware that i'll never be as good as i think i am in my head first thing in the morning you know <laughs> it's <laughs> It's like there's this, you know, it's like that old thing about we all think we sound like Sinatra when we sing in the shower, you know. And, and you know, I, I go to work in the morning and I'll think about the day's work and what's involved and what's required. And in my head, I'm thinking it's going to be great. I'm really this this scene today. I'm just going to I'm really going to knock this out of the park. You know, it's t I'm totally ready. I'm totally prepared. And at the end of the day, I'm thinking I'm I'm going home thinking. Oh, missed that one. Oh, I could have could have done so much better. And I think there's this, and this is the actor's dilemma. This is the this is the the truth that we all live with. That you know, we all think we're we all think we're Frank Sinatra in our heads, <laughs> but we're not. You know, and which is why I always tell people I never trust I never trust actors when they say that they nailed it. You know, <laughs> when an actor kind of does a take, goes, yeah, that's it, nailed it. I never trust that because I don't think I don't think we ever do. Here in our office, uh, when we booked you on the show, there was a sort of collective understanding that we would be playing a scene from the movie Boogie Nights, which, if anyone, it's a wonderful film. The film that, in some ways, established Paul Thomas Anderson as one of America's great cinematic auteurs, and um, it's also a totally bonkers movie. It's like super bonkers your scene um one of the more bonkers scenes <laughs> in the movie there was some discussion of like does this even mean anything on a radio show <laughs> um so basically mark Wahlberg is the protagonist a guy named dirk diggler who's a porn star who eventually starts to dabble in drug dealing and uh phony drug dealing and they go to meet your character uh, who's named Rahad Jackson. And it's really crazy. There's a giant dude in a bathrobe with a knife inside his bathrobe. And your character is high as um, And he has a giant revolver. And also another guy just off screen is playing with firecrackers. <laughs> so uh, let's take a listen. That's some kind of motor, isn't it? Uh, not yet. Is that silver? <laughs> Look. So, do we, this is that's not, don't point. <laughs> don't point. You should not point the gun. Sir, Todd. Wait, you think I can't do it? No. Wait, wait. No. Tell me what. Wait, you think I can't do it? Sir, wait. You want to see me? No, we don't care. You dare me? No, we don't care. You dare me?
there's this version of that scene uh, that a guy made and put up on Vimeo where he removes the music digitally. And it is so crazy and intense. With I'm mean, like, the music is so fun that it gives the uh, House of Mirrors terror quality and edge of fun. <laughs> like the fact that everything is to the tune of Sister Christian, um, this goofy song. But like, it must have been crazy to do that over and over on st- on a soundstage or whatever. Well, it, it was, but it was our, our director, Paul Thomas Anderson, did a very clever thing, which I thought was brilliant. And it was all to do with tone and texture. He wanted the, the young actor who was playing my, like, you know, my houseboy, as it were, who yeah. was lighting the firecrackers. He instructed him to just light the crackers in his own time, not to worry about continuity or, you know, as each take, just to do it whenever he felt like it. And the crackers were full, you know, full bore, as it were. So they were very loud. A sound man's nightmare, but, you know, they went with it. So the three actors, Thomas Jane and and Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley, who were sitting on the sofa sort of watching me, they could hear those firecrackers going off at full, you know, full volume. And it was, and they didn't know when it was coming. So every time they reacted, every time they kind of jumped or, or got freaked out by the noise was completely genuine. But P.T. Anderson wanted my character to kind of float through this completely unaffected by it. So what he, we did was he, I plugged up one of my, one ear was completely plugged up. So I couldn't hear anything. And in the other ear, there was an earwig, so I could hear the dialogue. So when the firecrackers went off, all I heard was like a faint sort of, like a very faint sound, like in the back. So, I, so it didn't cause any reaction in me. So, so Rahad Jackson is wandering through the scene, eerily kind of completely unaffected by it. And that, just that simple decision, created a very weird vibe. And it was, and it worked so beautifully because I was, I was, you know, supposedly the character was supposed to be as high as a kite. And it was just, it was such a stroke. I thought it was a stroke of genius on his part. We'll have more with Alfred Molina after a break. We'll talk about how he thinks being the child of immigrant parents made him a better actor. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Alfred Molina. He's an actor with over 150 screen credits. Maybe you've seen him in Magnolia or Frida or Promising Young Woman. He's starring in the new Spider-Man movie, which is out now. When he and I talked in 2017, he just starred in the FX miniseries Feud, which centered on the real-life rivalry between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Let's get back into our conversation. Do you, as an actor in your 60s who have performed every single kind of role, relate to the part of Robert Aldrich, the character you play on Feud, who has just worked? Yeah, I I do. I I think part of why I enjoyed playing Robert so much, and I, you know, I didn't get to meet any of his surviving relatives or anything. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any sort of insightful conversations with people who knew him on a personal level. I just, I just garnered what information I could from what's out there in the public, uh, in the public domain. But I, 
I enjoyed playing him because I kind of, I related to him in many ways. And one of the things was, this was his job and he loved his job, but it was his job. You know, he never, he never spoke about his job in any kind of way that was mystical or some way, you know, like it was uh, some strange sort of moment of, you know, uh, connection between him and something cosmic you know i mean when it went when I, I i get a little i get a little frustrated with that approach to acting you know when people talk about it as if it's some kind of strange metaphysical event that only they know about it's a craft you know it's 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 a it's a it's a job and and my pleasure in the job is is being able to utilize whatever skill i've got to the best advantage and uh but I see it as a craft. It's you know, it's a craft that I practice, and um, and I think my my connection with Robert Aldridge was was that I could see that in his work. Lin Manuel Miranda has that line in um, Hamilton: "The immigrants we get the job done." Yeah. I wonder if you, having gone into the most frivolous of all professions, <laughs> um, uh, if there is a part of the way that you approach your work that comes from the fact that your parents were immigrants who chose on your behalf in large part to live a life of painful and difficult work. I'm, I'm sure that's that could well be. I don't quite know to what extent or how deep that goes, but I, I think you're right. I think there is... I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a kind of anti-intellectualism on my part or whether I'm just being defensive or if I'm just uh trying hard not to, you know, not to sort of be honest with myself about it, but I've always I've always thought that my parents' experience of being immigrants to the UK and my own experience of being an immigrant to America has given me a perspective that is more to do with just wanting to just wanting to do the job rather than wanting to kind of talk about the job you know i mean i i talk about acting you know i i do a bit of teaching occasionally uh i'm happy to talk with younger actors about my experiences and and you know they whatever they glean from that is great you know if anything but i I don't talk about the work as if it was art. It's a craft, uh, in my opinion. Um, I I try not to use the word artist when I'm describing anything I'm doing or anything I'm about. It, uh, it, I see myself as a craftsperson, and my and my job is is part of a bigger storytelling process. That's why I've always my only criteria was to stay employed. And that's something I learned from my parents. You know, uh, that's something that I watch them do, and something that I, at one point in my life, I kind of despise them for it, but now I I respect them enormously um, for what they had to deal with, what they had to sacrifice, what they put up with, what they achieved, um, and any story. And I think playing characters who are not from where they are. You know, playing characters who are foreign in some way, maybe that's part of it as well. Maybe the attraction of playing those parts is to do with their experience and mine. Um, but as far as the work's concerned, I, I I take my work very seriously. 
and I really admire other people's work. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a consumer of good work as much as I try to be a, 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 a practitioner. Um, but it is a job. It's a gig. It's, it's, um, it's a craft that you can, that if you're lucky enough to stay on the bus and keep working at it, um, you can get better at it. Well, Alfred Molina, a.k.a. Alfredo Molina. Thank you. A.k.a. Fred Molina. That's right. Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk oh, to you. Likewise. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Alfred Molina from 2017. There are so many Spider-Man movies at this point. I don't think I can even count that high. But the two with Alfred Molina in them are particularly excellent. Spider-Man 2, maybe still my pick for the best Spider-Man movie ever. And the newest one, Spider-Man No Way Home. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I finally got the TV up on the wall and uh, I gave away this dumb entertainment console that I've hated ever since I bought it eight years ago. Gave it away for free on Craigslist. Nice man put it in his SUV. Never been so happy to see a piece of furniture leave my home. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to Memphis Industries, their label, for letting us use that tune. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Go check us out in all of those places, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.